0: Greetings from Taipei. As you might have noticed, I haven't been posting episodes as frequently, and that's because I've mostly been spending time with family, my daughter, and just taking it a bit slower in Taiwan. However, I wanted to start putting out some older episodes. In the last year or two, I think my subscriber count has 4 or 5x'd, which means many of you probably haven't listened to some of the older episodes, which I think are just as good as some of the newer ones. So without further ado, I'll dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast, exploring the human side of work. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I'm fascinated with how we can imagine past the default path to do things that matter. I have conversations with entrepreneurs freelancers, and thinkers who are questioning the role of work in our lives, who are thinking about how we can unlock creative potential in ourselves and organizations, and are carving new paths in the world to create a more human future of work. If you want to support the podcast, check out the Patreon link in the show notes. And for more information, go to boundlesspod.com. Today, I'm talking with Tash Walker. She's the founder of The Mix, based in London. For the last year, her team's been working a 4-Day work week, and just released a fascinating in-depth report about what they learned. I am really pumped to talk to her about this today. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Everything you do seems to be driven by a fascination of human behavior. You write this in a lot of places, and in the report, around the four-day work week, you write, human behavior is fascinating, research isn't. Perhaps we can just start with that statement and dig into what you mean there.
1: So, um, that is a line uh, that has been relatively controversial. Certainly, some of our research clients are not totally um, in favor of that line, but it's a line (laughs) that means a lot to me because, (laughs) because I think that um, if you go for dinner with people, then you often talk about a TED talk that you may have watched or maybe an article that you've read. Maybe you've read a Malcolm Gladwell book, you know, all of these kind of things. And we're all obsessed with reality TV. So we cannot get enough human behavior. We really enjoy learning about ourselves. Psychology is the number one subject for any TED talk. Um, if you search for, you know, favorite TED talks, it's always to do with human psychology. And yet, at the same time, we spend more and more money on research. So the research industry is growing. Um, Every year it grows. We spend more money on it. And yet it's almost the last thing that gets referenced in the boardroom, if ever. Maybe it never gets mentioned. Um, Because ultimately, we're really bad at telling stories about the people that we find. Um, And so it becomes very data-oriented. And we really stop our ability to even really determine what's insightful at all because we're just drowning in information and so the research industry has become quite I think poor at being able to see the wood from the trees at being able to tell those stories in a really compelling fashion that really makes a difference at board level despite the fact that probably half those members of the board are watching TED talks and reality tv themselves they're not being interested in the people that are buying their products or services because research is not doing a good enough job of getting insightful information into their hands in a way that's digestible and engaging in the same way that either a TED Talk would or a reality TV show.
0: Completely agree. It it almost seems like because we have so much information, we've made the consistent mistake of thinking, okay, more information is better, and we're slowly realizing that that actually might not be true.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And I think that, you know, for me, the biggest thing here of all is... um, this absolute, you know, tsunami of information that we're dealing with all the time. Um, And that, of course, means that, you know, we just don't pay attention to the right things, we get easily affected, and we miss the bigger picture of what's really going on. So, yeah, we get really, really stuck into lots and lots of tiny bits of detail and forget about, you know, perhaps some of those stories that are really interesting and that could make a real difference in the world.
0: In digging into some of the research, we'll get to the four-day work week, but you... Did another post, I think this was in 2016, where you talked about your firm banned PowerPoint. So perhaps your firm already had some practice in terms of taking uh, alternative routes. Maybe you can talk about that and how it might have laid uh, the groundwork for what you did more recently.
1: Well, I mean, I think PowerPoint is a great example of this. All except accept that lots of the things that we do, particularly in the workplace, are just a given that they're kind of these... Facts of life that we can't move around, and that you know, PowerPoint and Excel and Word and all of these things are kind of middle objects. And we just have to work with them. But I studied design before I studied um, anything to do with psychology or research, and you know, the one thing we get taught when you start out as a designer is uh, don't go straight to the Mac. So you know, think about what you want to do. Use your pen and paper. Because ultimately, any time you use any kind of program, any kind of office type scenario, it's already training you to think in a certain way. It's already programming you to work in a linear fashion. So exactly like PowerPoint, you know, you'll write your slide and then you'll both go to the next slide and... Everything about that program forces you to think in a certain way. And so if you recognize that, then you can start to think, well, actually, maybe there's a different solution here. And we're being forced to think about it in this particular way because of the constructs of, you know, the office place and how we work together. Um, And so, yeah, absolutely. I think when we started out at the mix, you know, the joy of having your own business and starting your own thing, as any startup or entrepreneur will tell you, is that you can decide what to do. And I think there's no point in doing that kind of endeavor unless you then play with it and have a bit of fun. And, you know, you get to challenge the things that you hated about your previous jobs and go, actually, we don't have to do that. We can do something different. You know, banning timesheets, for example, brings great joy to my life. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Where does this come from? I mean, this uh, I've I've worked with a lot of founders who. I think there's a natural hesitancy just to try new things because it is so you're so close to the company and you don't want to take risks to potentially lose it or blow it up. So where does that come from from you?
1: I think probably I have a quite pro-risk attitude, and I love that conversation around risk. I think I love you know people's insight into how they feel about risk because, of course, we're all such contradictions. And you know, part of what we do here is all around behavioral economics. People view risk in different situations very differently. Um, I'm quite uh, risk averse, I would say, if it came to a social situation, but I'm very pro-risk when it comes to work. And I think that's partly down to this idea that. I genuinely think that, you know, we're not saving lives with what we do here, ultimately. But we can make things a bit better if we embrace the idea that, you know, maybe we should try something different. I mean, the risk to me of this all not working out is, okay, well, I'll go and do something else then. So I think for us, there isn't a risk. So it doesn't feel risky when we try these things. It just feels like, well, we can see a problem. Why wouldn't we try and come up with a solution? Um, I think when people are more risk averse it tends to be because they've got something really physical or tangible to lose maybe that's money maybe it's commitments outside of work maybe you've got mortgage to pay all of those kind of things um, which I think can inhibit your feeling that you can be pro-risk but I think if you reframe that conversation and ask yourself what's the downside of not doing this for me is always the thing that spurs me on to think let's do it because <laughs> I don't want to think about this in five years time and think if only we tried that
0: That's a lot of driver around personal regrets, too. I think I was reading some research that says that people rarely regret the moves they make because then you can just adjust to what happens on the downside versus regretting things they wish they had done.
1: I think it's a great great way of looking at things. Um, And I think, you know, we live in a world where there are lots and lots of things that frustrate probably most of us on a daily basis. If you have a chance to maybe challenge just a tiny bit of that, then I think that's I think that's something worth, worth doing.
0: I'd love to dive into the initial impetus for thinking about the four-day work week. In the report, you talk about a crisis you were dealing with where you're working a lot and you didn't even have a lot anything left when you're coming home at the end of the day. Maybe you can talk about that and how the wheels started initially turning for this experiment.
1: I mean, take yourself, for example, or, you know, anyone listening today. If you think about how your day feels, um, you know, think about all the interruptions you might have, the different responsibilities you might have. Maybe you've got your kids to pick up from school. Maybe you've got to run to a gym class. You know, how many times a day are you checking your phone, checking your notifications? that kind of experience of living in the world today I think can be incredibly stressful and we noticed that of the people we worked for so our clients but also consumers that we were working part of research and I think it felt like this common theme that was constantly coming up again and again that people just kept saying oh I just feel so stressed I've got no time and it kind of made me think actually how do I feel and I think I noticed quite quickly that the more I heard other people saying that, the more you start to pick up on your own kind of uh, sort of emotional landscape, if you like. So I think running a business, if anyone ever done that, everyone knows what it's like. It's pretty full on. It's high stress. There's lots of pressure. uh, You feel compelled to work all of the time because, you know, it's your thing and you want it to work so much. Mm -hmm. So I think personally I got to a point where, There was just a recognition that this is happening everywhere to everyone, but I was part of that. And I think often when you're observing other people, you can sort of forget about your own emotions within that. And I think there was a moment, um, probably certainly about 18 months ago, where collectively as a business, we just kind of started to think maybe we're not that different from everyone else. And, you know, my relationships were part of that. You know, my husband certainly was saying to me points, can you just not work right now? You know, when are we going to spend time together? And so the start of that process of thinking, okay, this is something that we should be thinking more about and taking the temperature of people in the room that work for us and work for me, it was clear that everyone was feeling that. And I think that the worst thing to think is that if you're leading a business and people working for you, that they're experiencing some of that level of stress that you obviously don't want to feel yourself. So we started doing a bit of research into different ways of working, very broadly, not with any kind of your agenda at that point, more just to understand if there's a better way of doing things. Uh, and so we looked at different ways of working in different sizes of business uh, from different places around the world. We saw some people were doing things like, you know, finishing an hour early on a Friday in the summer, for example, or giving people time off to go do yoga class on a Wednesday afternoon. And so there were lots of different um initiatives I would say that felt very much part and parcel of a normal business practice but we're just kind of trying to mitigate some of the stress level we then came across a report from uh, some of the Scandinavian countries into the idea of all day week and it was the first time I read something and I thought they're not just dancing at the edges of the problem that they're really really trying to tackle it head on because you know an afternoon off here or there or an hour off to do more yoga felt like you're just asking them to do more with less time and that, for me, was just not the point at all. It felt like, OK, if, we tr- if we're meaningful about, you know, playing with things and, you know, rethinking about way we do stuff here, um, then we need to do something that's more tangible and more meaningful than just an hour off here or there. And four-day week was the only one that we found that did that. And there were all sorts of um, sort of reports in terms of how productivity was better and how mental well-being was much improved and all of these kind of things. So we then kind of laid out all of these different options in front of us. And in honesty, I was really nervous. I was thinking, God, that's, that's really significant. Um, you know, maybe we should just do a half day or maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And I think we constantly came back to this idea of if you mean what you say, don't do a half measure... And so four-day week felt like the one that was risky in to feel like it was worth doing properly. And so I think going back to that conversation we were having around risk, we almost needed it at that point to be significant in order for it to feel like it was going to make an impact. And everything else just felt like, uh, you know, like you were just messing around with something that, that was probably not going to change a great deal and therefore was a bit pointless. And that's how we started. It was just a real recognition of our own feelings in the world. And then that feeling that, okay, we need to try and do something significant about it. And four days was the most significant example out there that we could find that, that really put that into practice.
0: In some of your research on this, you discovered that the shift from giving people half day off on Friday to a four-day work week is actually a change in the type of fundamental questions you're asking about people's relationship to work in their life. Maybe you can share a little bit about what you found there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the first thing to note is that work is only a part of people's lives. And I think increasingly today, what we find is, particularly in you know the kind of style of work that we have, there's pressure to do more and more and more. So if you think about how many times you answer email in the evening, maybe it's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, uh, on the weekends. And so I think there's this pressure to do more, even though productivity is not improved as a result of that. I think what we also notice is that that means that all of those other things in your life, which are really important, you know, seeing friends and family and taking care of your life admin that people often talk about, gets increasingly squeezed into smaller and smaller buckets. And as a result of that, you feel this constant pressure that you're juggling. And that's whether you're a parent or whether you're just a single person. That's true of everyone now. And we found that ourselves, that, you know, you get to the end of Sunday and it just feels like wow, you've just spent a weekend doing another set of jobs because actually you've had no real leisure time and leisure time I think has really suffered um, in the world uh, particularly as technology has increasingly meant that we can work everywhere and so actually our leisure time is in, is decreased significantly so really kind of trying to redress that balance I think was really important as part of four-day week to create more boundaries so that people had time to do the things that they wanted to without fear of uh, you know needing to have to work literally every single day of the week in order to prove themselves and in effect that's what it does it creates that boundary of saying work and life are both important but one is not more important than the other and in fact life is much more important and that's really the intent is to try and make sure that people are aware of that
0: when you went to finally so you did all this research you said okay maybe this is the right risky decision we want to make what did you do next? Did you bring it to your company? How did people react? How did you actually just implement this?
1: Uh, yeah, we brought it to the team and it was a decision um, that we made to do it. We decided to do a three-month trial and that was because we thought there would be lots of problems, honestly. We thought it would be full of um, difficulty and challenge and, you know, we that it would work, quite frankly. There was a real nervousness that it would just be could be a disaster i guess so we initially brought it to the team as a proposal of this is what we want to do um the team then were responsible for coming up with how so we spent a lot of time before we started the three-month trial thinking about the things that might go wrong or the different ways that we might need to work because the emphasis here was not about doing five days in four it was about how do we work differently so we brought it to the team they were nervous, more nervous than I anticipated. Um, you know, I think everyone now is probably suspicious of businesses doing things. You know, where's the what's in it for you mentality? Right. Am I going to get paid the same? All of these kind of questions, which are totally fair. Um, and so we had to do a lot of work together to work out actually what's the good way of doing this for us that makes sure that everyone feels comfortable and not more stressed rather than being less stressed, which is the intention. And then we started. Um, and honestly, I think that three month trial was interesting. not everything went right, but in the trial we didn't tell clients what we were doing We, we were really nervous that they would suddenly you know think we were doing a rubbish job or you know where had we gone and you know we suddenly weren't as um, you know available to them so the trial was really much more about clients in a way and then of course us working out how to do how to do what we do in four days. And then we got to the end of that three months and no one had noticed. So that was a bit crushing, (laughs) (laughs) crushing in a way, because you kind of think, oh, I thought we were more important to you than that. (laughs) And then great in another way, because you go, "Ah, no, they don't care. So we can do this and we have permission to do it. And I think, honestly, I don't know what we were thinking having a three month trial, because it's not like you could do a four day week for three months (laughs) and then be like, oh, actually, guys, sorry. That was a rubbish (laughs) idea. We're not going to do it. Um, Listen, so I think that is bad bad business to do that take something really good away from people um so no I think we did it foolishly but with good intent and it worked so that was the important thing it worked no one had noticed and in fact when we did start to tell clients they were like what this is amazing you should do this more this is fantastic and you know, we'll support you and we'll help you, and you know wow. they do. They absolutely do. They're pivotal to our success in four day week.
0: So I, I think one of the sacred beliefs I worked in professional services for ten years is that you're getting paid for your av- availability, right? Uh, right? Responding on weekends, late nights. I never bought that. I just said we do that because we're neurotic about responding rather than clients are actually paying for that. I always say clients are paying for incredible work, right? Um, so yeah. did, did this made, make that fundamentally clear or did you also have to make some changes to uh, shift around that as well? Hey there, it's Paul and thanks for listening to the Pathless Path podcast. I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm really loving doing this show and for the first time have the support to help me take it to the next level. Unfortunately, it's still pretty hard to spread the word on podcasts, but that's where you can help me out. If you enjoy these episodes, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or Spotify or simply share the episode on social media or with some friends. Finally, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably like my book too. It's been read by thousands from around the world, and each week I get notes saying how much the book helped people on their paths. You can grab the audiobook read by me or other versions in the link in the show notes below. Let's get back to the show.
1: I think you're right. I think because the bulk of, I guess, value, particularly in the economy now, comes from the services rather than from manufacturing, I think there's a real feeling within the services that... Service means being available to your point or, you know, being there always or, you know, creating better ways of doing things. And that ultimately often just leads to bureaucracy, to unnecessary process, to presenteeism and to a whole host of things which are fundamentally pointless. So I think you're right. I think what we had to stress to clients was that this would produce better work because, The other thing about the service economy is that it's about ideas, right? So we're selling ideas often. And if you're not coming up with good ideas because you're knackered or tired or stressed out, then your work is not as good. And so I think for clients, we talk about it in the context of being fresh, not frazzled. And, you know, if they want great work from us, then we need to be fresh and to be a part of the world and not just to be chained to our desks and that makes our work better and i think we've definitely seen that clients rate that they you know like the fact that we turn up and we've bought them a different thought because we had an extra day of the week to not be buried in emails but just looking around us in the world and thinking about the different solutions we could come up with so i think it puts much more value on ideas fundamentally i think four days means that what you're saying is the most important thing to your business is that people are coming up with great work, not great availability. And I think that's exactly right.
0: What are some of the things you stopped doing because you just had less time and realized they weren't priorities that people were just doing regularly?
1: Uh, I think we prioritize our time internally more than meetings externally. So, I mean, everyone talks about being in too many meetings. Um, I think we spend more time together as a team. And actually, I think one of the misnomers about four-day week is that you just stop working together. So, you know, a common phrase that we use today is flexible working. And I think what that ends up meaning is that you just spend endless amounts of time working in different places, using technology, but you don't ever actually spend a lot of time, a quality time together. And so in four days, you can't individually get to your four day unless we work together to get something done. So I think it's meant that we prioritize that much, much more. And we spend much more time and quality time with no technology and, actual good honest conversations and interactions which means that the ideas are better straight away and then people spend much less time actually physically getting it done and that's i think the fundamental difference to the way we work now
0: right and did you establish any safety or kind of barriers to protect people from i mean every company is going to have those people that just want to work more right um, <laughs> and one of my arguments for like equality in the workplace is we should just cap the hours of everyone. So we don't have these extreme outliers that are, uh, are working everyone did. So did you put any barriers up to set to kind of block people to work on Fridays? I know you had some exceptions in the first year, but I yeah, wonder about we have great.
1: We have a couple of fail-safes for emergencies, which is, you know, fair. And we do have to occasionally do that. But it's real emergencies and it doesn't happen very often, I think, five or six times in the whole year. Um, In terms of that idea of um, when are you working, I think a lot of it comes from top down. Like, are you right. as a boss sending people emails on a Friday or on a Sunday or at 10 o'clock at night? And if you are, then you're placing an expectation upon people to respond to that. So it's about being respectful of people's time i think in france they've made it illegal for employers to send uh, emails to staff out of hours and i totally agree with that i think that's a great attitude oh, wow. <laughs> to have and it's actually legal um and so i think that's exa- exactly the kind of mentality that we would like to have here which is uh, live by your own standards um do the four days talk to people within those days and avoid absolutely sending people emails at ridiculous times of night because you are placing the burden on them to respond and that's unfair. And that's, yeah, that's what we don't do.
0: I don't think that law is ever coming to the United States.
1: (laughs) And it should do.
0: Um, What, so what do you do on your Fridays now? Talk to me about uh, your extra day.
1: Well, okay. So the first thing is I make marmalade a lot on Fridays, which is a personal passion point of mine. And the reason, The reason I do that is because, um, A, I really enjoy cooking, but also it's one of those things where you have to spend a long time doing it and it allows you to get into flow states. I don't know if you are familiar with that at all, but it's Uh, something I I find really interesting. Um, You can't think about other things. You're just really concentrated. And I find that so refreshing in the same way that people, you know, find going for a jog or a run or doing yoga, uh, you know, really good for your mental well-being. I do those things too but I really enjoy making marmalade because it really forces you to get into flow state but one of the things I think we wanted to make sure of is that Friday didn't just become another worthy day I think we're all overachievers in the world now aren't we so everyone's got to have a side hustle right. everyone's got to have another charity job or you know be doing all of these great things outside of their you know nine to five and We didn't want this to become another exercise in placing more burden on people to just have to be doing more. So If you want to do your laundry, do your laundry. That's that's the point of the Friday. It's a release mechanism. It's a safety valve for your mental well-being. It's not about having to do courses or going to do humanitarian work or any of those other things. It's about being a human being and getting to do the things that allow you to enjoy your weekend more.
0: What what has been one of the most profound stories you've heard from one of your employees about the impact it's had on them?
1: Um, I think, well, we did a couple of things um, in terms of what people are doing on the Friday just so that we could understand. Um, people are doing more exercise, so they're healthier. <laughs> people are seeing their family and their friends more, so they're better connected. And... Uh, you know, that's, that's a win for us. I don't think it necessarily has to be more profound than that. Um, it's about allowing you to be a human being. And so doing exercise, being healthier, being better connected, those are proven ways of living longer and living healthier and better and feeling happier. Um, and so if we can contribute to that by allowing people to do more of that, I'm happy.
0: That's amazing. And what what have been some of the pushbacks you've gotten – Or, what are the most common pushbacks you get from people? I mean, when you say, when you share these kind of ideas with people, people are naturally so skeptical and people are Mm. so good at coming up with reasons why this can't work. So, what are the biggest uh, challenges you hear from people and what might be some of the responses?
1: Uh, That's so true. You're absolutely right. And it's frustrating because I think biggest one we get a pushback for is oh you're a small business uh that's so nice it's almost cute it's like we run a cupcake shop or something um that's lovely you know but this could never work here because we're a big business well i don't agree with that i think it absolutely can work for big business and it's been proven to work in other big businesses so there's lots of reports now Uh, of organisations as big as, you know, the equivalent of the NHS in Scandinavia, who trials a four-day week. Uh, We've got organisations in the UK who are adopting much more flexible working practices, um, HSBC, it's a pretty significant size, banking corporation, um, and others as well. So the biggest one is we're too big, so it's too complex, Um, the pushback I would say is you have to make it simple so for example we work Monday to Thursday and then we all have Friday off which means that we've got really clear boundaries uh there's no worry about where people are or you know how to get in, in touch with people or understanding your team's rotors so we've just made it really really simple for ourselves to put stuff into place that means that we can we can do this really well and that's exactly the same for big business um I think often we hide behind complexity as a reason to not do something but actually I say that's probably the best reason to do something, because we know that we're working longer hours than ever and being less productive than ever, particularly in the UK. Um, And so ultimately, uh, we have to find a better way of doing business and complexity is not the reason to not do something.
0: Right. And I I think it's a good opportunity just to look at the productivity of creative labor, right? I think you alluded to some of this, which creativity is a result of being rested, (laughs) well fed, um, and actually having space to think. Which people, for some reason, we just pretend we are these uh, automatic robots that can just keep churning out more and more. And a lot of that's left over from the industrial age. But um, have you dive into basically what drives creativity and read some of that research?
1: Oh yeah you're absolutely right and you know for me and what I do particularly in my job because my job as a planner is you know you have to come up with ideas and solutions and you know one of the kind of longest held beliefs of any kind of creative endeavor is that you need mental space to do that not even productive mental space time it's not like you have to be working on something to be able to come up with something creative it's more The time to mull, almost the time to not be thinking about it, because those are points in your brain where you make uh, interesting leaps of imagination or you connect ideas that perhaps didn't look like they could be connected. And so it's really important that you have that ability to, at points in your life, not be doing stuff. Uh, right <laughs> you know and again like I said for some people you know their best ideas come when they're in the shower or for some it's when they go on a jog or run or whatever it is but usually it's not when you're working and it's because you've allowed your brain to rest and to be mulling something and to cogitate and therefore you'll produce something really really interesting and I don't think we spend enough time thinking about that in the creative industries in terms of okay, so where are we carving out these points in our day uh, to allow us to do that? And at the moment, the the kind of onus is on you as an individual to just add that to your, you know, rest of your life stuff as opposed to your work time. Um, And that's really bad.
0: Right. And so you share some of the human impact, right? People are more mentally well um, rested in shape, but people might say, okay, you still need to make a profit. That's the whole point of this. And your results actually were pretty impressive. Did those surprise you?
1: Yes and no. I think we assumed that productivity would go up because everything we'd read suggested it would. So I think I assumed that, maybe unfairly, but that's been true, that has worked. Um, We've had 75% less sick days, which I think tells you a lot about (laughs) the kind of the kind of stresses and strains that, you know, most normal people encounter. Um, you know, and if you think about it, we had in the UK last year twelve and a half million days related to work related stress, so people not being able to go to work because of that. And that's not necessarily attributed to a specific mental health problem. It's more, you know, you get those days and you think, I cannot cope with today. I can't face going right. to work. That's the most common sick you know, type of sick day that people take. So we've had 75% less. So I think that's a really good indication that we're getting better at making people feel like they can cope with what they've got on their plates. Um, Our revenue's gone up by 57%, um, which is extraordinary. I don't think that's about four days. So I'm not going to stand here and say, Oh, if you do a four day week, you're going to make more money because that's, I think not not true. But what I would say is I don't think it's anti-commercial. It's not going to, it's not going to prevent you from making money. It's not going to stop you being a good commercial outfit. And you know, I'm a business owner. I, you know, need my company to not go bust. That's important. <laughs> you can only do good things in the world if you're in business. Um, and if you go bust, then you can you can't do those things anymore. So that's important. But it's not stopped just making money. And I think the emphasis for me is on this idea of creativity. Um, if you can't do the same stuff if you have to rethink about how you work then you come up with better solutions and so I think our work's got better as a result of that and I think the work's better clients are happier they give you more work and it's a virtuous circle Um, and so I think that's why I think it's a very actually very commercial decision as opposed to something that feels anti-commercial which I think is often how four-day week is framed by some as though it's this kind of hippie-ish very socialist agenda, um, which somehow doesn't understand the needs of big business to make money. And I don't agree with that.
0: Right. And I imagine you've had clients or potential clients come to you because they see, oh, wow, they're thinking different and they're valuing their people. Have you had any of that reaction?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I wouldn't be having a conversation like today with you if we hadn't done this, which is, you know, an enjoyable thing. So, we've made interesting connections we've I think deepened our relationships with our existing clients because everyone I think in the world um, looks for places where they can find their own humanity and I think the more we talk about our humanity the more other people think wow, they're a decent bunch and you know, I want to work with them and we have much better relationships with existing clients. And you're absolutely right. It also introduces us to new clients. Like I said, I don't think I'm going to put a value on four-day week as in it's contributed you know, X percentage or X pounds to our bottom line. But I would say that I think it's strengthened relationships and it's created opportunities for us to have conversations.
0: Right. So who shouldn't institute the four-day work week?
1: Well, no one. I mean, I think that um, certainly I can speak of the service industry. I cannot think of a business that shouldn't think of doing a four day week uh, and do it really properly. And I cannot think of an example of a business that can't do that. I accept that in different types of industry manufacturing that potentially there's challenges. Um, but already you see manufacturing people working shifts and different hours. So I again think that it's possible to achieve in most businesses. Um, and so I think, you know, the limitations on on why or how to do a four-day week are, I think, self-imposed as opposed to practical or real uh, things that we really can't get around somehow if we use creative thinking to find better solutions, basically.
0: Yeah, in some ways, I mean, I've I've worked in manufacturing and they've pioneered some of these things a long time ago. They do three 12-day Sorry. shifts. Uh, they do every other Friday off. I've worked in different environments and they basically get you rather have somebody focused in one day a little longer than uh, working every single day of the week. Um,
1: yeah, right. Exactly. So I, I totally agree. I think um, lots of the reasons to not do this are entirely self-imposed and I think they're just not real. I think we just mistake them for being significant problems when actually what it comes down to is a bit being risk averse and uh fundamentally not not being prepared to uh, think differently about the way that we have our relationship with work set out
0: so question for you is there too much stuff in the world
1: <laughs> yes there is way too much stuff in the world um, I'll give you two examples of this so if you go into a supermarket in the UK uh, you want a jam um, or jelly as you might call it in the states uh, you would be able to find 104 different varieties. That's a lot of jam. It would take you two years. That's the
0: paradox of choice right there. That
1: that is the paradox of choice right there. Um, And I I think hilariously, we had an example uh, two years ago in the UK, which we bought for the office actually, uh, where... I think the ultimate example of too much choice is that you could buy Christmas scented toilet roll um, from one of the major retailers in the UK. And that for me was the moment in my mind when I thought this is the point where I realized that there is too much stuff in the world. Wow. (laughs) Um, We've gone too far. uh, We've we've done it. That's it. Capitalism gone too far. It's too much. We need to pull back. Um, And you know, there's loads of conversations now around sustainability around how do we have uh, an economy which is uh, buoyant, but at the same time doesn't rely on just constantly selling more things. Black Friday we've just had a great example of consumerism gone mad. Um, despite the fact that for the most part most of the deals aren't real, that they are you know marketing, and you know most people are not going to be better off by buying more of those things. So yeah, there is there is way way too much stuff in the world, and inhibits us. it Inhibits our ability to dwell. To feel good about the choices that we make, uh, whether that's the kind of jelly that you buy, toilet roll that you buy, or whether it's the kind of pension scheme that you have, there is too much stuff. Um, and the mistake is that because we live in democracies, we kind of have this mental association with freedom and choice. Freedom and choice often go hand in hand you know you have a conversation about choice and it leads to freedom of choice and so we wrongly associate the idea of having lots of things in the world as being a positive thing for our experience of being humans and wandering around feeling happy and content and that's a mistake it's great you know to have choice in certain instances and when the choice is limited. When we have lots of choice, actually what we end up finding is that we then just doubt ourselves and that even if we really like something, we question whether it was the right thing and that can be anything from a book set to a life partner. So ultimately, the more we do this to ourselves, the less we will enjoy our experience of being in the world.
0: And how do you navigate that belief with running a marketing firm and working with your clients?
1: Um, Because I think what often happens in marketing is that there is no ability to think around the right choices. So in marketing, there's a proliferation of just things being produced and, you know, failure rates of innovation in in marketing are astronomically high, something around 98% of all pieces of innovation fail. And so I think the way that we rationalize it here is if we can have a hand in helping people, understand what people really need rather than what they say they want then we can have the opportunity to help people make things better, produce better things produce fewer things but better things um, and that ultimately is, is then not just contributing to the tsunami of rubbish that we produce now
0: and this may be jumping back a bit but how has your or how did your studies in just literature and art influence your perspective on the world and how you think about running a business?
1: Well, I mean, I think the one thing that you learn when you study literature and art is that there is no right or wrong answer and everything is opinion. And so when you enter into the world of marketing and running a business, often it can feel quite categoric. It can feel very black and white. And I think what you realize working with people is that people are so full of contradictions. People don't behave rationally um, in almost any situation, Um, although we would like to think that we're very rational. beings and we actually kind of often quite describe people being emotional in a kind of pejorative sense oh they were so emotional that's described as being quite <laughs> negative ne- a negative attribute right
0: they're just being actually remotely
1: emotional yeah they're being human because that's what we are uh, we don't make rational choices uh very often at all if that if anything so those kind of ideas i think work very nicely when you look at the world of art or literature because you realize that quite almost immediately that the way people write, the way people paint, draw, sculpt, whatever it is, uh, is very reflective of our human condition. It's that real sense that uh, our own contradictions are the thing that I find so fascinating, that we can be one thing today and another thing tomorrow, and that's totally okay. Um, a great example of that, I think, would be uh, the kind of idea of moral licensing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but,
0: yeah, that, um, you know, for me, Malcolm Gladwell talked about that on a yeah, podcast, right? right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of my favourite, you know, human features, I think, which is that idea that you can have a salad at lunchtime and then in the evening have a massive burger and several, you know, beers. And that's totally fine because you had a salad at lunchtime. So, yeah, I think you can't understand the world unless you start to understand its contradictions. um, And that's that's the most important thing about human behaviour.
0: I love that. So what message might you leave for business leaders or entrepreneurs to rethink how they're running their business or structuring how they work?
1: Uh, When it comes to running a business, I think we lack empathy. So we see things in a very financial way. Way, And I think that's fine. But if we think about the growth of the economy and the kind of pursuit of growth for endless growth sake, what we haven't really considered is the factor of what it feels like to work in those kind of conditions. And so I think being more empathetic to literally what it feels like to work today and how that squares with our ability to have a life that feels full of meaning and purpose and allows us to get out of bed and not feel terrible about the day ahead of us. um, I think it's the most important thing for business leaders to consider right now because what is the point of growth if we can't also enjoy the experience of growing at the same time Um, and we haven't squared those two things yet and I think that's the one thing that business leaders need to pay attention to.
0: And what might you suggest as a first step, if people just want to experiment in new ways of working or uh, just see if they can institute something that goes against the grain what might where might you tell them to start
1: I think the the best place to start is to look around other business models um like everything there are there are no new ideas in the world are there so Most likely, there's someone in the world somewhere that's tried something that might be useful for you. And that's exactly where I started, which is just a bit of desk research. What different practices are people doing and how do they work? And it was that simple. It took me probably 20 minutes to find maybe 10 examples. And it was that kind of first moment of truth when I thought, "Ah, actually... I don't have to reinvent the wheel here. There's already something that I can take from this and we're going to really go for that because it fits my business model. So um, 20 minutes of death research will get you there.
0: I love it. Well, I'll definitely link people to your report. I think your report is one of the, it's actually one of the best things I've read on the modern state of work. It hits it from so many angles in terms of just bringing up the fundamental questions, rethinking leisure, talking about work and productivity and definitely will point people to that. Uh, anything else you want to leave people with or point them to? Uh,
1: there's all sorts of uh, conversations around flexible working right now. And I think the one thing that I want to just leave people with is probably this idea of what do we mean by flexible? Because actually, for me, flexible uh, has become uh, a bit of a tyranny for most people. If you feel like you have to turn up to work all of the time, whether you're at home, whether you're in a car, whether you're traveling wherever then that's not flexible for me that just means that we're working all of the time and so the way that we do it here is by being inflexibly flexible uh we have really clear boundaries we set those boundaries we understand that technology uh, isn't always a good thing in business doesn't always make things better and so the minute you start to do that i think you can start to have a much better relationship with uh how you work and put into place some different practices that make things a lot better for everyone
0: Thank you for listening to the Boundless Podcast. If you have feedback, guest suggestions, or ideas I should explore, I'd really love to hear from you. One of the best things about this journey I've been on is connecting with all the people from around the world who are resonating with some of the ideas, some crazy, some better, some worse, uh, that I'm putting out into the world. Uh, you can email me at paul at think-boundless.com or find me on the various socials, which I link in my site. So I'm focused on keeping this podcast ad-free, clear of requests for ratings on various platforms. Basically, just want to keep it useful, interesting, and worth listening to. Uh, You guys hear enough about different underwear and sleep mattresses that people are pushing. I mean, how many mattresses can uh, people sell? It's unbelievable. Um, Anyway, if you do want to support this podcast and uh, support this crazy journey I'm on, Uh, you can do that on Patreon through the show notes link. And this is just so much fun. And I really thank you for listening and the continued feedback and support.